We're going to turn to the Bible now, uh, and uh, if you've got Bibles, you want to open them at Luke chapter 23. Don't worry if you haven't, because words will come up on the screen as well. Uh, We're in the middle of a series looking at the end of Luke's gospel and the beginning of the book of Acts. And we're going to read from Luke 23 verse 50 to chapter 24 verse 12. And Jesus has just died. And so this is a big deal. Luke chapter 23, verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, who had not consented to their decision and action to kill Jesus. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down wrapped it in linen cloth, placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who'd come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. They then went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they'd prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they didn't believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. So as I say, we're in the middle of a series uh, called When the End is the Beginning, looking at the end of Luke's Gospel and the beginning of Acts. And in life, endings are often beginnings, even if they're painful. Endings can be the beginning of something new. And this obviously is key today as we look at the end uh, and the beginning. So I don't know if you're like me, but it slightly depressed you this week how quick we were to return to election coverage. (laughs) Not long to go, is it? Everybody's talking yet again after tragedy back to the election. Everywhere you turn, and if you're like me, you're a bit fed up, but only a couple of weeks to go. But my Twitter feed got interesting recently because somebody introduced Jesus into the mix. Here it is, Tom from London. If Jesus were alive, he would be branded a dangerous extremist and would be a strong supporter of Jeremy Corbyn. Sip of drink. And of course, as is the way with Twitter, some people agreed and some people didn't. Some people agreed strongly, 
Some people disagreed strongly. And then, of course, the names started flying back and forth, back and forth, until helpfully, then the political journalist Robert Hutton, who you may know of, made a subtle but important point. As somebody who is a professional, a journalist, he gave a tip to those people on Twitter. Here's his pro tip. When going for the Christian vote, don't start tweets if Jesus were alive. You can have your discussions about which politician you may or may not be interested in, which politician you think Jesus might particularly favor, but don't begin those discussions with if Jesus was alive. It's a familiar phrase, isn't it, that pops up every now and again. If Jesus was alive, he would live like this. He would endorse probably the things I endorse. He would be a bit like me, is most of the attitudes that go with after that phrase. But it gets to the heart of something really important, doesn't it? If Jesus was alive. And we know what people mean when they say it, but there's often an assumption behind it that Jesus is just like many other religious teachers. And so Christians who claim that, that Jesus' way is the better way is just comparing it with other religious teachers and somehow thinking that Jesus is better. But of course, the central heartbeat of Christianity is completely different from that. That Christianity is not like any other worldview, any other belief system at all, because the central heartbeat of Christianity is not, if Jesus was alive, you should live like this, but the revolutionary claim is, as Jesus is alive, everything is different now. This is the central aspect of Christianity that sets it apart from any other belief system that you may or may not choose to invent or whatever. That Jesus did live, that Jesus did die, and that Jesus did come back to life in history. That's the central heartbeat. And the reason why that happened is not to give us a list of things to do to make a better world or a better life, but that because Jesus is alive, everything is different now, everything. That's the unique, world-changing, death-defying claim at the heart of Christianity. And of course, the reality is this, if Jesus didn't, rise from the dead, then we may as well just pack up and go away. It's a lovely day out there, we're missing out the sunshine. If Jesus isn't alive, then what we are doing, frankly, is a social gathering. And you're lovely people, but I would rather be elsewhere in the sun. And of course, the Bible itself says the same thing. Listen to these words from Paul, the apostle. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. If Jesus isn't alive, my job is just a waste of time. I've given my life to something that is wasted away. But not only that, Paul goes on, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile you're still in your sin. If Jesus isn't alive, all of your belief systems are nonsense. They're futile. This is a big deal. You're beginning to get the impression. 
This is the central distinguishing aspect of Christianity. This, if you like, is the thing. We can have all sorts of discussions about Christianity, all sorts of analysis about this teaching or the church or interesting things, but this is the thing. This is the deal. It centers on this, it stands or falls on this. And so if you're here this morning and you've got questions about Christianity and you're just not sure, start here. If you're here this morning and to be honest, you've got a bit of a struggle with church and there's certain behavior of the church or certain thing that the church has done in your past or or in the world at the moment or whatever that you just find so difficult and so you're not sure whether you should kind of jack in this Christianity stuff. Ignore all that, start here. If this is true, everything changes. Or it might be that you're here and this morning you've got certain questions about the Christian faith, certain aspects about the teaching of Jesus or certain aspects of bits of the Bible that you struggle with, certain aspects of morality that you're not sure fit in. Can I say start here, not there? If this is true, everything changes. If it's not, what difference does all that teaching make? Start here. This is the thing. Let me illustrate that. I don't know if you know who this is. Her name is Anne Rice. Anne Rice, she's a famous author, famous for writing lots of things about vampires called the Vampire Chronicles, writing The Queen of the Damned, and the international bestseller, the film was made of it as well, Interview with a Vampire, you may have heard of that. Well, a number of years ago, she stunned the literary world when she swapped vampires for a book about Jesus, from talking about things of the night to talking about things of the light. It was an amazing transformation, and she got on the circuit. She was invited to do all sorts of chat shows, all sorts of talks, because she was, quotes, a famous celebrity Christian. But then a few years later, she shocked people again when she announced this. For those who care, and I understand if you don't, today I quit being a Christian, I'm out. It's simply impossible for me to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. For 10 years I've tried, I've failed, I'm an outsider, my conscience will allow nothing else. And I guess some of us have sympathy with her because of the way we've been hurt or the things we grapple with, the things we're not sure about in the church or thing questions we have about Jesus' teaching or questions we have about the Bible. But the liberating thing is this. Christian faith doesn't stand or fall on the strength of the church. It doesn't stand or fall on interpretation of certain Christian doctrines. It doesn't stand or fall about how moral or impressive we are. It doesn't stand or fall about how good at praying you are. It doesn't stand or fall about how impressive anything is apart from the claim that Jesus really did die and rise again. As one author says, the issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. If Jesus rose from the dead, it changes everything. And if he doesn't, what difference does it make about his teaching? Start here. 
And so for the rest of our time, I'm going to split it into two ways. Firstly, I'm going to briefly say, give some reasons why I think I'm convinced this is believable. And then we'll end with why it makes such a difference to all of us today. So here's the first reason why I think it is believable. Because it was astonishing back then. You see, people today understandably say the resurrection of Jesus is a tricky thing to believe because people generally die and don't rise again. And so therefore struggle naturally with understanding and believing that Jesus would rise from the dead. And so all sorts of spins are put on it. The reality must be that in the ancient world, they didn't know what we know about medicine. They didn't know what we know about our bodies. They didn't know what we know about death and life. They didn't know what we know about science. And so therefore, Jesus either wasn't really dead or something else happened with the body and so on. The logic is simple. People don't really come back to life. And so there must be another reason for all of this. Now, can I say, The resurrection is challenging to believe. It really is. But it was hard to believe then, too. Look at the response of when the women first report the news to the disciples. They didn't believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. We've got difficulty believing the resurrection today, and so did they. They seemed like nonsense. And so the response then is, well, the first Christians must have made it up because they were either so upset about Jesus' death or they just wanted it to be true. They couldn't cope that their one they put all their hope in was now gone. But of course, the Bible doesn't let us get away with that either. Do you notice who the first witnesses were? They were women. Now, you may well know in that culture, the testimony, sadly, of a woman was not valid, was not trusted. And so therefore, if you're going to make something up, you don't give the evidence to somebody that nobody believes. That's not the way to get people to believe it, because they would not believe them. After all, they didn't believe it. (laughs) It was nonsense. It was astonishing back then. It wouldn't have got off the ground because people didn't believe it then unless there was something to it. Which leads me to the second aspect. It was astonishing then, but it was also believed then. You see, the author of this, a guy called Luke, is making a pretty clear point. Do you notice some details? Look again, how he sets it all up. Talks about Joseph, a member of the council, good and upright man, who'd not consented. In other words, he didn't agree with what was going on about Jesus. He came from Arimathea, and he went to Pilate to ask for Jesus' body. Do you notice certain evidence there? The location of Jesus' tomb. That he was a member of the ruling council and he even asks the governing authorities for the body. If you're going to make up a story, you don't give the sort of evidence that people will check about where the tomb is. They will go to the authorities. They will want to know who this man is. If you're going to make something up, you don't give the sort of evidence that people can check. 
real people, real places. But even more than that, listen to some amazing words from Paul. You see, what happened is, of course, the church grew and therefore people began sharing all around the region that Jesus really was alive. And Paul went to a place called Corinth, set up a church there. And of course, those guys had never been to Jerusalem. And so Paul reminds them of what happened. Listen to these words. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Two important things here. Firstly, Jesus appeared, says Paul, to more than 500 people at the same time, most of whom of those are still alive. In other words, go and ask them. They were there. Check it out. Investigate. This is an invitation to explore real people, not some myths, not some legacy, some legend that people just have to take at face value. Go and ask the people that saw Jesus. That's the first thing. But do you notice who else he appears to? I think this is amazing. Then he appeared to James. I've got a brother. My brother's name is Pete. I love my brother dearly, but he's not the Messiah. I love him to bits, but he has many, many faults. And of course, he would probably say the same about me. And I'm sure that you, if you have a sibling, will know. You may love, you may not, your sibling, but you will know warts and all about them. Here you have Jesus, his brother James. Now I don't know if you know who James went on to become. James went on to become the Bishop of Jerusalem, leading the church in Jerusalem. And he would be murdered for believing that Jesus was alive. Now here's the deal. Would I be willing to be murdered for claiming that my brother was the Messiah and was alive again? No, because I know he's not. James was so convinced about who Jesus was, so convinced that he was alive again, that he then went and gave his life to telling the world that Jesus really is alive. Friends, Something happened that they believed then. Check it out, real people. The early church grew not because of some good teaching that you can make your life better with, but by proclaiming Jesus is Lord. Not Jesus was Lord or Jesus has been Lord or Jesus should be Lord. No, he is because he is alive. And no wonder, therefore, this is the deal breaker. What do you do with all this? Well, can I suggest to you this morning, the one thing that you can't do is ignore it. Either it is true or it isn't. But you can't just not take a look, can you? Look at what Peter does. It's a brilliant, brilliant attitude. 
They didn't believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. The least any of us can do, regardless of whether we think we're church people, regardless of our background, is do what Peter did. At least check it out. If there's the potential that this might be true, you don't want to walk on by because you think you know. Check it out. And if you were a Christian and you, you're struggling with certain aspects of your faith, you don't think you're a good enough Christian or you're struggling a little bit with church or there's certain bits about the Bible that you grapple with, you're not quite sure and you try and reinterpret them or whatever, can I suggest don't start there, start here. If Jesus is alive, All of us need to change. All of us need to spend the rest of our lives putting our hand firmly as his, saying, I'm with you, because you've beaten death. And so here's four aspects as I come to a close about the difference it makes in our lives. And the first is this. The fact that Jesus is alive takes away despair in death. I love this quote from a guy called Michael Lloyd. Because of Jesus, the grave is no longer a place of despair, but a bed of hope. Now it's important to notice something. Do you notice what is not said? Jesus' resurrection does take away despair in death, but it doesn't take away the ache, the pain, the grief, the emptiness, the sadness of death. Despair is hopeless. Pain, the reality of grief, is still very real and shows our love for people, doesn't it? And for some people who've been around church for a while, there's a danger in jumping too quickly to try to wish away the brutal pain of grief. One of my favorite books of all time beyond the Bible is a book by a guy called Nicholas Walterstorff called Lament for a Son. It is a beautiful, beautiful book written by a professor of philosophy in America, but it's basically a poetic, heartfelt cry of his own heart about when his son Eric died in his early 20s. And it's an honest, raw account as somebody who is a believer in Jesus about how he grapples with grief. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. And let me read to you some of his words. I did not grieve as one who has no hope, yet Eric is gone. Here and now he is gone. Now I cannot talk with him. Now I cannot see him. Now I cannot hug him. Now I cannot hear of his plans for the future. That is my sorrow. A friend said to me, remember he's in good hands. And I was deeply moved, but the reality, that reality doesn't put Eric back in my hands. That's my grief. For that grief, what consolation can be other than having him back? And he's right, isn't he? And then he goes on, and it's a long quote, but let me read it, because I think it's brilliant, about our response then to death. What do you say to someone who's suffering? Some people are gifted with words of wisdom. 
And for them, we're profoundly grateful. There were many people like that for us. But not all of us are gifted in that way. Some blurted out strange, inept things, and that's okay too. Your words don't have to be wise. Or maybe even just an embrace will do. Not even the best of words can take away the pain. And then listen here. He says, but please don't say that it's not really so bad, because it is. Death is awful, demonic. If you think your task as comforter is to tell me that really all things considered, it's not so bad, you do not sit with me in my grief. But place yourself off in the distance away from me. Over there you are of no help. What I need to hear from you is that you recognize how painful it really is. I need to hear from you that you are with me in my desperation. To comfort me, you have to come close. Come sit beside me on my morning bench. It's no wonder, isn't it, that Paul, even himself, calls it the greatest enemy, death. Christians may grieve as those who have hope, but we do still grieve. And in our society where we do all we can to avoid death, even shrink-wrapping our meat so that we dare not admit an animal had to die for our meat, no amount of religious self-help suffer gives any solace in death. It aches. It aches. But for the follower of Christ, in that ache, there is hope. There is a day where there will be no more mourning or crying or pain or death. Therefore, the resurrection changes everything. The resurrection changes everything for those of us in this room right now who are mourning those that we love who've died recently. The resurrection changes everything for those of us in this room who have distant memories of loved ones that still feels like they were with us yesterday. For those of us in this room who grapple daily with disabilities and the fragility of our bodies that don't work, the resurrection changes everything. For those of us who grapple with mental health stuff where every day is filled with darkness, the resurrection changes everything. For those of us who are terrified because right now we are waiting for test results, the resurrection changes everything. Friends, this makes all the difference. I remember a few years ago sitting with somebody who was dying in her hospice. I was holding her hand, a young woman in her 40s, and I remember holding her hand and gently praying with her and saying to her, Kate, none of us have been where you're about to go. We don't know what it's like, but it's better to go there with Jesus. And if you want to go there with Jesus, just give my hand a little gentle squeeze. I have no idea if when she squeezed my hands, it was the electrons in her brain doing all sorts of stuff. But what I do know is for the family, the fact that Jesus is alive and there is hope beyond grave makes all the difference in the hospice, in the hospital room and at the graveside. Yes, pain, but not despair. A bed of hope. That's the first thing. The second difference it makes is it changes our response to Jesus. We've said it already, 
but start here. If you're somebody who's not sure whether you're with Jesus or not, or you're not sure because of some bits of Christianity or the institutional church or whatever it may be that you struggle with and you're therefore thinking of jacking it all in or not going with Jesus. That stuff, don't start there. Start here. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, then all of us will have questions. If he didn't, you can bin all that stuff and move on. It changes our response to Jesus. If Jesus is Lord of eternity then I want to put my hand in his because there will be a day where no more mourning or crying or pain. Third thing is, of course, it changes how we fear death. Yes, death is painful, but for those who are in Christ, we have nothing to fear. It's amazing, isn't it, how many times around the resurrection stories in the gospel where the angels say, do not be afraid, don't fear we can put our hand firmly in his. And finally, the fourth difference I think it makes, and I think this is a biggie, it takes the pressure off to succeed in life. 1 John chapter five in the Bible says these words, this is the victory that has overcome the world. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God. And then in John's gospel, Jesus says these words, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. We live in a world of success and achievement, where we've always got to do better, work harder, be better, be more beautiful, have a bigger house, do better in your job, do better in your assessment, be a better friend, be a better husband, be a better wife. If only you were doing this, if only as a child you were more well-behaved, more, 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 all the time, harder, better, be more successful. And that's the message we imbibe from everything that we've just got to be more impressive and therefore most of us are walking around exhausted. Exhausted. And Jesus simply says, you're gonna have trouble in this world but take heart, I've overcome this world. Christ has conquered death itself. What more do we need to achieve? We can simply put our hands in his and say, Jesus, lead me. Because I'm going to get so much wrong. I'm not success. But Jesus, you've beaten death. I'm with you. And therefore, may we put our hands firmly in his. Shall we pray together? Let's pray. As the band come up, we're going to respond together. And I guess for some of us, this has been quite raw and in the stillness we may simply like to ask God to bring his calm and that by his spirit he would show you his love his care and for others of us if we're honest we know we've been consumed by things and we've just got so many questions or struggles at the moment and this morning we've had our eyes lifted And in the stillness, Jesus is saying, come, put your hand in mine. And for all of us this morning, we can be encouraged that yes, we will have troubles, but we can take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. Lord God, we thank you 
that the resurrection is true, that therefore we really have nothing to fear because of Jesus. May we be people who simply live in the light of that, Lord God, full of hope, knowing that you've overcome. Thank you, Lord. Amen.